Is discussing one's relationship in public okay? Has the onset of social media made it more acceptable and even encouraging for us to share our very intimate relationship details? Hey, here's a selfie of my wife asleep on my shoulder. After years of epic dinner parties, long lunches and boozy brunches, we bring you Shaken and Stirred. Or rather, we are Shaken and Stirred. I don't even know what to say. We're starting this right now, Tom. <laughs> you know what? We're raising the bar here on Shaken and Stirred. It, it, it's, it's, you know, we, we love to interview the interesting people, people with a little sort of sauce and a little sort of outrage and, you know, anything goes on Shaken and Stirred. It's any conversation whatsoever. As you know, if you listen regularly, you know what I'm talking about. But we have today someone who is a very, very sweet man. I know him personally. Um, I'd like to call him a friend. Um, he's the professor of sociology and the director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University, no less. Mm. I mean, he's incredibly smart. Mm. And every time I see him at school, because our kids went to school together, I was always slightly intimidated in the initial days because I thought, oh my God, how am I going to actually say something smart enough? Ladies and gentlemen, we have Eric Klannenberg as our guest. Nice to be here. But stop the trembling, Nigel. I mean, it's just not necessary anymore. I can't help it. You know, what can I say? Now, every time I see you, I feel that way. Of course, my co-host, Tom Astor. Tom, what are we drinking today? We're drinking a Negroni, which is if, uh, Count Camilo um, uh, Florentine. On, I know. I'm just trying. I've already, He's already had, had a couple. I've already had half of mine, and I tell you what, it's doing the job. It's uh, it's basically um, uh, a play on, a, on an Americano, but replacing soda water for gin, making it a little punchier, a little stronger. It's, it's Created delicious. in 1920 in Florence, Italy. It's a rather nice color, and as mm. Eric was saying, has this... Yeah, Can you hear that? Rather I think it's nice also going to improve. I think the more, the, more, the more slightly watered down it gets, the more it's going to improve, the easier it's going to be to drink. I love it. Yeah. So Eric, first of all, you've written... Countless books. We were trying to work out how many, not how many books. I got it completely wrong. I'm like six. No, it's seven. No, I half wrote these two, but I wrote these five. You have a new book out, Palaces for the People, um, how social infrastructure can help fight inequality, polarization, and the decline of civic life. So before we get into it, the Palaces for the People, we're talking about libraries, really, aren't you? That's where the concept extent. comes from, yeah. I mean, so Palaces for the People is kind of a metaphor about places that exalt our experience in the world, uh, make us feel some sense of uh, dignity, satisfaction, and at their best, you know, it's, a, it's a metaphor for the places that bring us together. Um, but you're right specifically that Andrew Carnegie, the uh, Scottish immigrant to the United States who was you know, the kind of great titan of industry of his time and one of the wealthiest men in the world, uh, could be a pretty ruthless employer, actually. He, he, he did some very violent things to his workers, um, but was also one of the great philanthropists of his time. And he helped to fund nearly 3,000 public libraries around the world. And these libraries that he uh, helped to build were designed to be as close to a palace as an ordinary person could get, you know, high ceilings and big windows, um, beautiful places. And they have transformed life uh, in neighborhoods around the world for generations. You know, when it comes to public libraries, the gentleman sitting across from me and next to you, Mr. Astor, you may know if you've ever been to the New York Public Library, 
there is the name John Jacob. John yeah. Jacob Astor, who is your a great great grandfather, and he was responsible for building New York Public Library. So uh, it, it kind of struck me when I saw your book too that it was rather apropos that you know we would both be here together um, because I love it. The, the actual yeah it's the coincidence the coincidence is, yeah. is, is, is there a family story for for why the library but so not, many things you could build not that I know of um, I mean he, he I think it was done after I think he left the money um, it was built later he he left an endowment and it was it was built at a later date I think that's the general. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because there's so many things that you can build if you have tremendous wealth. And I, I think about this when I look at the, you know, the major, uh, you know, success stories of our time, you know, the Sergeys and Larry's and Mark's and Jeff Bezos's of the world, they're in the information industry, right? And they have not really focused on the library as a place where you would invest your resources. Well, so, let's, first of all, let's take away Jeff Bezos and Amazon. I mean, didn't Amazon, it was Amazon's originally a bookstore. That's right. right. So it's actually the opposite of what you're the saying. Anti-library. It is the anti-library. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon is basically the, the you know, the, the, they cause the destruction of almost all libraries because you no longer need them hardly. Mm. I mean, or do we? I mean, tell me. Let's get back to libraries for a second because they are these fantastic buildings. They are sort of special places. I certainly, when I think about my childhood growing up as a kid at school, for example, the library was the quiet place that I went to calm down, to gather myself, to to get away from the chaos, to have that moment, that special moment. I also had, I, I mean, I should probably not, shouldn't be saying this, but I had, you know, like little moment, sexual moments in the library. I mean, I did. There were, I would hide in the library. Kind of, and no. my Tom's looking at me going like, what? No, I'm just looking at you, just thinking, I'm so glad your wife's not here today. That's right. We, we promise not to tell anyone. Please don't tell anyone. This is just between us. But there were some saucy moments in the library, boys. So anyway, it doesn't surprise me. It's not the first story like I that. I think the way, the way he left that pause at the end, he's, I think he's waiting for one of us to go, Come on now. I'm blushing. I'm, I'm like, turn the color of the Negroni. No, it's your fault. You brought it up. So I guess I wanted to talk about the, the concept of, the, of libraries and this nostalgic Are they still sense. relevant? Are they still relevant? Yeah. You know, actually, it's interesting. This past summer, there was a, a guy who wrote an article in Forbes magazine arguing that libraries are obsolete that uh, what we used to get in the library, we now get in the marketplace or from technology, right? Because you can get just about anything in your phone at, at just about any time of day. And they expected that um, the, this article would be, I think, celebrated by you know, people who love the market around the world. In fact, what he, what he said is that we should knock down libraries and replace them with Amazon stores. And so it was a very bold, specifically that idea. And in fact, the response was overwhelmingly negative. The librarians of the world got crazy on Twitter. Um, and so just everybody wrote these um, impassioned uh, arguments about what libraries are so great for. But so many people wound up writing in on social media that Forbes actually took the article down about wow. 36 hours wow. later. So what is it the libraries do for us in the time when, when so many of us are carrying these phones and have so much access to information? Well, you know, libraries are one of the only places- I love that, he just asked himself a question. <laughs> you could tell I've been you, you know, talking too much brilliant. about this book. I've never, I've never known anything like it. I can, I'm just gonna go outside and actually sit with the producer right I, now I can make, I can make and, and listen to Eric talk. Because no. you can. No, no, please. That is a pity, great question, pity, but go for it. I pity love it. my children, right? You're, you're already thinking. This is why it's terrifying talking to him. You meet him at school sometimes. Because I'm like, am I going to say the right thing? No, wait a second. No, he asked the question for me. Now I sound brilliant. That's what I said. <laughs> exactly like that. Go Just ahead. get out of the way, man. 
Uh, <laughs> you are kind of helping him like this. I'm so embarrassed about this. Now I now, see. Now I feel self-conscious. No, I like it. Now Thank you're the you color. Talking. Now you're the color of the gritty. Please, I, I, want, I want this answer. Seriously, you're doing him a favor. So I just think about how few places there are in the world that want you to come in so they can give you something and how radical the idea is that uh, you are, by virtue of the fact that you're a human being, entitled to free access to the cultural heritage that we share. Is it always free? Uh, it's always free unless it's uh, you know, a library of a private institution that charges you an entry fee. So for instance, you know, I'm a professor at New York University, and if you're a young student, you can use the libraries at NYU so long as you pay the enormous tuition that this private university asks for you. So uh, the local public libraries are, are free, and that is an amazing thing about them. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think if you went to the parliament in England today or to Congress in the United States and said, I have this idea for a project and the library did not exist already, and you pitched a building that would be in every neighborhood that would be open, you know, as much as possible, and that would be uh, open and welcoming to everyone, regardless of their age or their citizenship status or their social class or their ethnicity. And the, and their job would be to give you things and to ask how they can help and to not judge you or surveil you. You would be laughed out of those institutions, right? That is so no, out absolutely. of keeping with the spirit of our time, and yet. When you walk into libraries... Well, you can access anything on your phone, right? But, so. The, but the, so the thing is, you, what you can't access is the gathering place where there are people who come together. So I spend about a year going to libraries just about every day. And among the things I saw there are uh, new parents and caretakers who were clearly thrilled to have a child in their life, but also a little overwhelmed by what often is the kind of isolation of that experience. If you're sitting in your apartment, especially you know if you're in a place like, like Manhattan or like London... You know, lonely. quarters are, are very lonely. Well, it's tight. You know, you mm. live in a tight space, or most people do. And like you said, these libraries are often beautiful buildings. They're often beautiful buildings. And so the library is a place where, you know, children start to play with one another, where parents develop relationships that provide support over time. There are older people who uh, might otherwise be alone and isolated who uh, can congregate in, in libraries. And, and let's be clear, um, in many neighborhoods, you know, a third of the people, half the people don't have enough money to pay for home internet access. So they, and, and they don't have an iPhone. And so, the, so it's a luxury to be able to do that. And, and people go to libraries to get online, you know, to get this thing that we take for granted as, you know, part of what it is to be in the modern world. But so, do they go to libraries to communicate? They go to libraries for all kinds of things. So because when I go to a library, most people look there at me for and sex. Go, you're there for sex, man. Other than the sex. Other than the sex. But that's the problem. Maybe that's why I've experienced this. But when I go to a library, people look at me and go, shh. Okay, shh. Well, I, how, do we, how do we respond to that? <laughs> <laughs> well, they know. They know what you're there for. Noisy. So, so, so no, you I, can't talk in the library. It's my point. Lover. So how can you communicate? How are they the great communicating? But how are they the, the, this place that brings people together? When you go to the library, and the first thing they say is, shush, stop no, talking. No, so libraries have evolved. So, that, so they're quiet places They've evolved. Libraries. I haven't. <laughs> God damn it. I should have gone now. If I was a kid today, could you imagine? But Give it down in aisle seven. <laughs> Science fiction section. Well, look, I mean, part of the story here is that that is one of the problems with places like libraries is that, you know, there are a, a lot of us get successful and then we go to more private institutions, right? Or we have more space in our homes or we, you know, we use our phones. And so we don't need the library as much. And I think there's a group of people 
um, for whom places like this are less relevant. And so because that group of people tends to run big companies and to run government um, and to lead kind of the opinion making in the world, we failed to collectively recognize how active and vibrant libraries are today. So if you walk into any neighborhood where you live uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon, you will see that libraries are the most animated, loud places around because kids are flocking in, you know, teenagers are going there. You have young kids who are there um, for literacy. You have, you know, all parts of humanity there. And the way that libraries have evolved is they now have, you know, separate areas that are quiet for reading and study, the traditional use. But there's also usually a teen center. I prefer the quiet section. <laughs> well, hang on a minute. He hasn't finished with the sections Sorry. yet. He might, he might. I'm just saying. He knows I'm going to keep on going. No, <laughs> I like, I'm just saying. I like the I like the quiet section. Tell me about the other sections. Well, that's because you're an exhibitionist. What other yeah, sections? <laughs> other, I'm going to get sectioned. I think. Anyway, come on. This man is never going to live it down uh, at this point. Uh, no, there's a there 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 uh, computer terminals where a lot of people go to library because they don't have a machine, right? And it's their way of plugging in. Um, there is often so the one library. I spent I've been to fashion shows at li at libraries. Before. Is that true? New York Public Library. Oh, absolutely. New York Fashion Week. Right. They had that massive run runway space. That sort of do you know with that huge corridor? Yeah. It's amazing. It's one of the most gorgeous spaces. But I, every time I was in there, it, going back to your point about these buildings being palaces. It is the most grand space. I mean, in, in Paris, they have them at the Louvre, these fashion shows. So in New York, where you've got these tents, they're all so blah, right? But if you go inside the library, the polished marble floors are exquisite. And of course, you're surrounded by books. So the actual sound mm. is, you know, they, it soaks up the sound. And you hear the pitter-patter of the shoes on the marble and the reflection of the gowns completely reflected in the ground. It's mm. a spectacular moment. And of course, it adds gravitas to the designer because they're in a library. So all of a sudden, it seems like the collection must be thoughtful. So there's all these sort of elements, too, to a library and the design that speaks so much to the fact that they are literally palaces. No, I think that's amazing. And, and it reminds us also that once upon a time, not too long ago, those are the places that we invested our collective resources in, right? That we, we took pride in building a library, right? The great philanthropists would want to build a library of all places because it seemed like part of the, uh, the mission of, of what it meant to be a citizen and to care about the fate of a society, right? So, so when Carnegie invested in libraries, and I'm sure this is true of your great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, yeah. um, the idea was that a, a library plays a central role, not just in advancing knowledge and kind of improving our collective fate, but also you know, giving people a chance to reflect and to make the most of themselves and to take advantage of the opportunities that that are there for people who can take time and do that work but that might not otherwise be there if all you do is live your life in the tenements and go to the factories every day so so we invested in these extraordinary places right which which can be literal or metaphoric palaces depending on, on where they are and they are extraordinary and, and the reason i wrote this book now is because it seems to me like we've kind of reached a point where we have become so divided, so polarized, um, so uh, uh, Is this by design, unable, though? Is yeah. design of places? Because I know, you, you know the book's called Palaces for yeah. the People, right? And you talk about libraries and these places where people congregate. And a lot of it is about design of neighborhoods and areas. And we, I know you and I on the phone, we discussed this, how the school that our kids went to, mm. the, the layout of the school, the fact that they're, you know, there's got a big courtyard out front where parents can mingle. There's a coffee shop right across the street. Like the actual design layout of the neighborhood brought people together. 
Absolutely. It was, and, and the areas, cities, you know, neighborhoods need this sort of intelligent design in order to bring people together. And, and potentially, uh, you know, I'm not sure that a library is that place because sometimes, and I only say this because if, it, if a building looks so amazing, yes, it's kind of tempting to go in, but at the same time, you may be intimidated mm. to go into a library. You may not think, you know, you think that you're, it's, it's a place where it's too, it's maybe too special. Or you want to hang out somewhere else and like the park or the ballpark or, yeah. you know, versus the library. Um, so what do you, what do you think about that as far as the design of cities? I, I guess how important is the library versus other public spaces that could perhaps accomplish the same concept? Yeah. So you're right. It, a lot of the book is about the design of places and how we make, you know, how do we build a better society? The book's about what I call you know, social infrastructure, like de designing these systems and structures that, that make social life better. And it's true that a place like the, the grand New York public library can be an intimidating place. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, our greatest galas are there and that we have the fashion show there. I think for the most part, the, the kind of neighborhood branch libraries that are really the lifeblood of most urban library systems are incredibly approachable and accessible. Clearly, and, I felt and, that way. And, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many you've got. I don't know how many you've got under your belt, literally. <laughs> oh my God! I think you know. I don't even know if they're going to let you back in. You're going to be one of the few people you know who can't get into a library. I recommend they don't. My library card has been re was revoked years we ago. We know why you're here, Barker. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know the the contrast that's really meaningful is between the library and the other spaces around them, right? And so, for instance, I spent a lot of time on the Lower East Side at this one library in a gentrifying neighborhood. And I noted that one of the wonderful things about the library is it was so aggressively welcoming. Like they, they really were programmed to try to bring people in and create opportunities for them to have a better day. And that was true whether you were a two-year-old learning, you know, to touch a book and, and look at pictures or an 85-year-old coming to book club or an, uh, someone with mental illness or an opioid addiction. I mean, they were really hospitable. And the contrast in this gentrifying neighborhood is that so many of the places that would formerly be there as like a, a hangout space, a, like a, a diner or a coffee shop, had become more expensive and more exclusive. And there were a lot of the people who lived in this neighborhood who just didn't feel welcome in the place that had a $7 ice cream cone or a $6 cup of coffee. And the hot new restaurant, which like for many people would be the reason to move into that neighborhood, right, sure. was for them a reason to feel out of place. And so the library was, was a safe haven. And it's interesting. I wrote a lot of this book when I was living in Silicon Valley for a year. And Palo Alto and Menlo Park, these are the, like some of the wealthiest places on earth, right? And, and a lot of the companies there design the, the campuses, so to speak, uh, uh, you know, as these places sort of meccas is sort of extraordinary places to, to live and work to encourage people never to want to leave work. That's exact, exactly right. In fact, that's the end of the book. The conclusion of the book is all about this, um, the social infrastructure that the Facebooks and the Googles and the Apples create on their, on their campuses. Um, but in the I went to Google and I couldn't wait to leave. Sorry. Is that right? I, I just couldn't stand it. But it's partly because I, for me, that the whole concept of, I could feel that they were trying to trap me. I felt like I was being lured in. I felt like, you know, I was being, it was a sort of Garden of Eden scenario or something where if I, one of See, us. Well, you yeah, felt you I was going to get belong. sucked in, and well, yeah, probably. Felt you didn't belong, which is so just highly exclusive to making making you feel like you want to belong for for for, for your employees. Well, also for me, I just right. didn't want to belong. I think that was part of it too. But that's another thing. I mean, that's another. No, aspect. it's it's totally right, and and it's and it, actually one thing that's that's fascinating is the way that these companies, especially Facebook, they say to their consumers, 
oh, the internet is your social infrastructure, right? Like after the 2016 election, Zuckerberg wrote this letter to 2 billion Facebook users and said, you know, you used to have the, the church and the schoolyard and the public space, but now we have so, you know, Facebook is going to be the great social infrastructure of the 21st century. And it's so disingenuous to say that while you just spent billions of dollars building a social infrastructure that's physical on your campus that's designed to keep people there as much as, as possible. As much as possible. Well, I always slightly, I mean, I'm probably getting in trouble for saying this, but I always viewed, I don't do Facebook, I don't have Facebook. But I always viewed it as, um, as basically what a, someone who found it very difficult to make friends at school would create and who was very t tech savvy, create a computer program so that they could actually, by, as a means of making friends, which is effectively, probably how it all started. And the thing about Zuckerberg is I'm not convinced, and you're going to have to cut this out. I think those are I don't want him chasing me down the road. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm convinced that he probably still has as few friends as he ever did, and he still finds it very difficult to make friends. Well, yeah, I guess you can always buy them. But you know, it, it mm. is one of those interesting things where certainly technology is, I think, largely responsible for the breakdown of society as much as it is one of the most wonderful things, right? Like today, today's age, you know, I ask a question and my son picks up the phone, he's 12 years old, and my daughter who's nine picks up her iPad and I probably shouldn't even have given them those things, but they have them. And um, they immediately Google them and they know the answers and they come up to me with things they've looked up and quizzed, you know, and they say, I want this, I need that, this is this history of this, this is actually this fact, fact check everything. Yeah. And I used to have to, as a kid, if know I stuff. Wanted, you had to know stuff. I had to know stuff, or I had to research. Well, my father would say, "Look it up." If I asked him a question, he'd say, "Go look it up." And he'd Cyclopedia make you. I say, you, "You know that you know the answer." He's like, right. "I know I know the answer, but you." you so, know. so it's. Not, I'm not against technology. I actually think there are a lot of ways in which the, these new devices can enhance our social lives. Like I wrote a book about online dating with Aziz Ansari, the comedian, and we looked at all the kind of amazing ways that people connect. You know, but also it can generate all kinds of new frustrations and challenges. Like that's true in online dating. But it's, it's true in all of our social lives. Like the, the danger I see, and I see this especially with our kids, and you know, Nigel, you and I got to know each other in the context of raising kids together sure. in New York City. It's like this kind of compulsion to be in the phone and not with the person you're with. And, and, and I see this kind of generation that's so distracted from the moment and distracted from each other. I think to some extent, you know, we're responsible for a lot of that in younger generations because we helicopter parents and we don't give them free time and we don't let them explore and so the only place that they can have you know private independent space is when they're on their phones it's like they're they sitting in a room texting their friend who's sitting in the same room i mean that's that that's the sort of yeah that's where, we, that's where we've got to yeah so 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 i think you know we need to have this thing in moderation and we've gone way too far to one they're side they're addictive though Eric. they're addictive i mean it's not even that you know that they we're just sort of giving them a private space. They are actually physically addicted. They can't. You know, they are. You know, and, and this is not my children because they're not on social media in that way. But for example, I know with myself and social media, I pick up my phone, I look at, I post a picture on Instagram, and then an hour later, I'll probably check it. And then maybe an hour later or thirty minutes later, I'll check it again. How many likes have I got? What are the comments? Like as if it makes a darn bit of difference to my day. But you get you know? this endorphin rush if it's a ton of comments or a ton Absolutely. of likes. And right? I even recognize some of the people who comment regularly. Yep. They've sort of become my sort of Insta friends. Yep. You know, and we have a communication. There is a dialogue. And I, I sometimes have to stop myself. I'm like, what am I doing? I put the phone down. I need to be present in the moment. I need to appreciate what's happening here and now. I, am I, I'm in some weird cyber world. Yeah. And it is quite terrifying. I'll tell you something really interesting about this year I spent in Silicon Valley where I got to know all these families that are in the tech industry. They don't let their kids use the devices. 
they, they know more than they anyone. Them, and they don't let the people they, use them. They know more than anyone how addictive they are and how dangerous they can be. And so here's a place where they're really investing in the physical places. And 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 wow. it's, so it's it's my strong view that if we have any chance of rebuilding, repairing, you know, getting through this awful dark time that we're in, it's it's the first step is going to have to be building gathering places, you know, whether it's a library or an athletic field or a school that's designed to bring us together or a commercial space that's truly accessible and welcoming. We, we need to start building these like places. What? Other, than, other than libraries. Okay, I get it, libraries. But is it, for example, you know, we had one of our guests on, James Kennedy. He owns uh, NYC Rugby Club. Mm. And rugby is a huge um, sport now that's one of the, apparently the top growing sport in the U.S., especially at colleges. And it's bringing people together like the sort of the good old days types yeah. of sports where people show up and whole families are in the stands and you know it's sort of a family sport partly because you can ID the players and really get a good look at them but you know is it things like that too like the types of sport not just places but what they're doing in the places very much so 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 that's about not building the place and then programming it right so we talked about the, how the library is a place but it's also programmed in the sense that the staff is trained to treat you a certain way or they have a book club or a children's reading hour things like that Athletic fields and parks are crucial in that respect. And actually, there's a whole section in the book is about, that's about this because my son is an obsessive soccer player. You know, it's like his great passion in life is to play I've seen him. He's amazing. F- football, for those of you yeah. uh, listening abroad. And um, uh, what it means is that he spends four to five days a week on a soccer pitch in Queens, which he travels about an hour or two to, you know, to, just to play for a few hours. And the people I see socially on the most regular basis are now no longer our community from the school, but this group of parents who, who, you know, who, who love their children and their children love soccer. So what happens is because it's a regional team, it's not a neighborhood team. We have people who come from Long Island and from Queens and from Brooklyn and from Westchester. And and there's only a couple from Manhattan and they represent a wide range of social classes. There's, there's very few, you know, U S born families, largely immigrant. Um, but there's also um, a contingent from Long Island that's very conservative. You know, they're Trump supporters. And there are a lot of people I would never otherwise meet or speak to. We don't see eye to eye on a bunch of issues. I was going to say, how do, how do, you, do you see eye to eye? Do you get on? And I only say that because we also have, you know, my, son's, my son and my daughter play soccer, um, football. And um, when I often go, I, sometimes I, I wonder if I'm being cut out of a conversation because they see me as an outsider. Um, I'm definitely so. I will say this: I'm definitely on the outside of a of a what's a much tighter community of people who you know have spent more time with each other. But at the same time, we've all gotten to know each other very well because we're with each other every single weekend. You know, for hours at a time. And sometimes it's like last year we traveled for a week. It's an extraordinary amount of time. And what's happened is that we've gotten to know each other around our shared love of our children, our appreciation for this right. game. We talk about all kinds of things. And so when we kind of move up to the realm of politics, you know, and these other things where we disagree, we've already established a degree of trust and kind of, you know, mutual respect that we can go there. Civility. Thank you. That's the word. So we can go there in a safe way. And it's so different than starting a conversation on Twitter, right? Where it's like, you're an idiot. No, you're an idiot. And like our, our, we go from zero to 60 with the hate so quickly on social media, right? That's another thing that the internet is so toxic for. But if well, we build these relationships in real life, about this. We've talked about this. Tom and I have talked about this a lot where, you know, absolutely social media, that people are so ridiculously sensitive at the same time, though. You know, if anyone says anything and, and they don't get the like that they want, for example, there's no 
dislike button. Right. right? There's, there's something to be said about the fact there is only a like button. Yeah, you can comment. So you actually, you know, verbally have to say something. But people are so sensitive that they can't handle the truth. You know, they have to only if, only if you say you like something and love something and you're giving them millions of hearts and you're sort of pouring over Which them. may be phony as well. Oh, the whole thing, of course. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's so, so many levels to... And when, when someone is nasty, they tend to be really nasty. Right, right. Really hurtful, spiteful. And, you know, and of course, they don't know you. They don't know who you are, where you're from. Right. Or anyone, in fact. You know, there's, most of these people have just see what they see and... and you know, act like they know someone like from a soap opera. Or right, something. right. And if you're nasty and spiteful enough, you can be president. By all accounts, <laughs> it works. No, so so I think so presidents th- get to build libraries. By the way, well, you know, it's so funny. My 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 father decided to troll me the other day, and he said, like, "All right, Eric, this palace is for the people idea. It's really good. How would you feel?" And he knows that I, I'm not a Trump fan. Um, he says, "How would you feel if Trump decided, you know, we're gonna we're gonna build the Trump Palace Library?" In every American city, you know, he'll give like a billion dollars to build like this enormous you palace. You said it, man. He might do this. <laughs> you know that. Now you put it out there into existence. I so he I, shouldn't do it. He probably will. Well, the, I think he's incapable of it. And the reason is that the, the kind of the principle and the program that makes the library work is its accessibility, right? It has to be doors open. It has to be supportive of knowledge. It has to be non, non-judgmental and non-surveilling. And the, if, if this president has any principle, it's about, you know, limiting access, Right building a wall like the wall is the man's favorite infrastructure and of course it's an antisocial infrastructure so i don't i don't think it's possible but it's a really you know it's a really interesting question what are the things that we're building that have some capacity to bring us together and to reestablish some sense of civility common humanity i think you know an athletic field can be like that a library can be like that uh, parks at playgrounds are essential play- meeting grounds. Um, uh, swimming pools have historically been gone either way, depending on how contested and divided the society you get is. There's a lot of germs at the swimming pool. Well, that's been, there's been a lot of fighting around swimming Well, it depends. Hang on. I mean, it depends what you're doing in the swimming pool as well. I mean, you know, don't, don't ask for your track record. I'm terrified of what Nigel's going to say Nigel's track record in the Not in public swimming pools. I'll just say, not in public swimming pools. Oh, my God. Chrissy's going to be... So upset that you ever invited me onto this program. I'm never allowed back in your home be, again. I think she might be more upset with him than Nigel, though. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. Yeah. Let's talk about you know, let's right. talk about personal space then for a second, because we're talking about you know we want to laugh about this, but there is something to be said about invading personal space too, right? I want to ask you a question: yeah. How close is too close when it comes to personal space? I mean, as far as when you talk to someone, you know, we've, we've all experienced it. You're at a close party, talker, a close talker. Someone gets really close to you, and all of a sudden, whatever it is, it's an inch or or it's two inches that they step too close, and all of a sudden, the conversation goes from being perfectly normal to being you feel quite uncomfortable and you panic. Yeah. I mean, what is that? Why do we? Do you know what that is in us that programs us to feel? That the person is either invading our personal space, it's become too suggestive because he's, who, he or she is now too close. Yeah. The look at them, the way they touch your shoulder for a second too long, whatever it and might we get be, it. we get it, we feel it, be- we sense Because it. we're enormously sophisticated um, people, actually, socially. And, and here's one of the arts of living in a place like New York City. Like if you, if you live in New York and you have to navigate the sidewalks every day, you have to deal with the subway system, what we become expert in is establishing an informal code of conduct that allows each of us just the right amount of personal space um, and and the right amount of security. So it's a marvel if you take the subway, especially if like if you're on the sixth train or the fourth, the, the really crowded subway lines, that people are crunched in together at a level of proximity that would make us feel really uncomfortable. 
And we all know just how to turn our head in exactly the right way so that we're not looking at each other. Or, Horrible you know, things happen it, on subway it, But that's so interesting you said because I just flew in from England yeah. uh, the other day and I was outside the hotel, quite a busy, busy street uh, outside this hotel having just got here and it was rush hour. And everyone was going towards, I can't remember what the station was, Penn Station or something. And it was Russia, and people, people were on the move, and they knew where they were going, and they knew where they had to go, and they were, it, the place was absolute. And it, you're right, everyone was moving inside, and it's fluid, but mass, you know, but I, was, I had to cross the street. I had real trouble. I mean, I because I I'm not programmed right. into the New York sensi right. sensibility of of how to give each other that space, and I really was jump, jumping around, trying to get out of the way with people kind of like you know, people giving me this filthy look. <laughs> like, what did, you know, what is this? <laughs> What's he doing? You know, so, going the wrong way. Yeah. Just a crazy, the odd crazy person as well. Viewed, judged as the crazy person, so they were navigating me very professionally. I was kind of jumping around, really feeling it. all I wanted to do was go and. Sh get my back against a building uh, in a little color yeah. and just get the hell out of the way. And yeah. I really had that feeling. It's very interesting you brought that up because I've had that being a, not from here, I had completely that feeling That's that right. I didn't have that skill. Actually, so my wife will not walk in Times Square. And the problem with Times Square, it's not the gaudy architecture or the lights or anything. It's that there's too many non-New Yorkers. And so they don't know how to walk. And it, you know, native it's me, me. Native, I mean, you. I was in the. I was You're in the, the problem. I was in the my hotels in Times Square. I was that. Person I'm staring at the problem right now. Staring at the problem. It's like a popcorn machine. Like they're going in all directions. Pop, pop, pop. And you're like, no. oh my goodness, I don't know what's happening. Exactly. And so you're bumping up against each other. But what's amazing is how much of the time we actually figure out how to make it work. So that when there's a breach, you know, like you could be at a party with 150 people and almost all the interactions are, you know, relatively smooth and calm. And then we all remember the close talker who doesn't get that rule. Um, so I, like libraries are interesting places because there's this mix of humanity. There's so many, and subways are like this and parks can be like this. There's so many different kinds of people. And when I spent a year going to the library every day, I could count on one hand the number of times there was a problem where they needed to like bring in security. You know, there's no police officer there. It's really interesting how successful we can be at informally regulating. Civilized. And, and actually that's why like when we think about the conversation right now or you know what I like to call the situation that we're in. You know, it's like instead I mean, of the current in current government. The current situation. Fill in the, the blank. You okay. know you know what the current situation is. You don't want to deal with you don't have to go into the details of the situation. It's it operates at this kind of high level of like scale and so, to some extent it doesn't involve actual people interacting with each other most of the time. At the local level, if you think about what's happening in your city or your neighborhood, for the most part, it's a much better story than kind of what's happening in the big picture at the national level. And, and I actually think that we, we're, we now have to really invest in the places where we live so let's to, talk to about get through the places this. where we live. So yeah. let's talk about New York City for, for a moment because you know, we, we live in New York City. We tape, shaken and stirred in New York City. People live very close to one another. Most people are crammed into apartment buildings. Now they don't have the luxury of having a house or anything like that. And I, know I have a house upstate and I have some land and I don't have neighbors that are very close. However, I walk around in my neighborhood and every single person says hello to each other. They all know each other. They're all very civil. I walk into town and people from New York City who are in the local town of Woodstock will say hello. And sometimes locals will say hello and the, the, the New Yorker will be like, oh, you know, meanwhile, if you're in New York City, and this, by the way, New York City is not made up of native New Yorkers. New York City is made up of people from all over the world and certainly all over the country. Yet somehow when they come to New York City, 
they decide that they're not going to talk to the neighbor who lives next door to them and they see in the you know in a corridor every day or going to people become uncivilized in my opinion they become- oh, it's so interesting i have i have a totally different reaction to that and and my my interpretation of it is is you know you're you're right about the facts that we don't get to know each other quite as well you know street to street block to block but i see it as precisely about civility and the idea is it's kind of mutual respect that people are busy people are making their social life in some other place and in but some other way they're busy in atlanta they're busy in but birmingham it's the, it's the, alabama the, it's the density of the people you cross by every day in new york so there's so many more people who are in your building and who are on your block in manhattan that the conditions don't really allow you to stop and say hello to everyone. Okay. So we have, so we mm. so so we selectively pick the people we want to spend time with, so and we build our community. But I don't think that's that's a civilized. So you're saying to what he, Nigel's perceiving as as, as uncivil, um, well, uncivilized. Sort of, you're perceiving as actually a, a higher as a higher level of, of of consciousness. I'm arguing that he's right a now. native yeah. New Yorker. Yeah. Clearly, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's how every New Yorker would love to have you believe that. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you're from the South, like my wife, you know, she comes up here and she's. Hey, y'all, to everybody she sees, and she's super friendly, and people sometimes frown at her. I can and, vouch for that. You know, yeah. raise, you know, like, what's happening? What's why is she so fake? Why is she so friendly? Why she she can't be real? It's yeah. not that's not real. No. And then meanwhile, that's who she is. And by the way, she's not alone. That's how a lot of people are. Let me tell you something you know? really interesting. So sociologists, uh, and I am part of that tribe. We actually study this, and it turns out that people who live in cities have larger and more diverse social networks than people who live in small towns. So if you if you live in a small town, what happens is People know who you are, and people can recognize each other. They know a lot about you. Um, and so you have, as you're walking in the town, a feeling of being connected, right? Because everything is familiar. But there's actually fewer people in your life. Whereas if you live in a city, what happens is you, you, you know a lot of people, and you probably know people who do different kinds of things, like the different parts of your personality can come out, like you've got a group of guys you, so you work out with. you just hit the nail on the head there, I think, personality. Go on there. Yeah, well, so okay, we'll go back to that. But the thing about living in New York City, I grew up actually in, in downtown Chicago, um, very much like New York in some ways, and the experience is most of the people around you are strangers. And so despite the fact that you actually have a larger network on average and that you're more likely to find people who are into the things that you're into mm-hmm. – you feel more alone most of the time because you can see yourself as different from and uh, unaware of the people around you. So let's go back to personality. And I want to tell you the reason why. Okay. It's because, for example, I've done a couple of things. One, I've noted the fact that my son, born and bred New Yorker, my daughter, born and bred New Yorker, my son is a classic New Yorker, as in he doesn't like to say hello to anyone. He's actually a very sweet boy, very charming. The sweetest boy. Sweetest kid. Yeah. But, you know, he will go through the building, not say hello to the doorman properly. I'm like, say hello to the doorman. Hi. You know, nervous, <laughs> sheepish, walk on. He walks down the street, has a slightly pissed off look on his face. He's a teenager, you kind know, of preteen. So he has that look on his face. And I'm like, what's the matter? Nothing. I'm fine. And he, you know, he won't really say hello to various people that we see on a regular basis. And everyone's fine with that. No one's saying hello to him either, by the way. Mm. You know, they're all just getting on with their thing, doing that New York thing. And apparently that's the civil way, right? But my daughter, on the other hand, exactly the same upbringing, exactly the same everything, large dose of my wife in her will walk. As soon as she gets up, hi, daddy, walks down the corridor. Hey, how you doing? Wow, I can smell marijuana from underneath that, by, that door. You know, oh, that dog's barking really loud. She walks straight into the, into the, you know, the elevator and she'll comment on the woman's uh, you know, lipstick. She'll go downstairs. She'll see the doorman at the front door and she'll be like, hi, John, you look great today. Have a great day. You know, and she walks straight out and she's saying hello to people. And I'm like, 
what is she? Who is she? People constantly say, who is your daughter? What, what is she doing? Meanwhile, when she's in the South or just with the rest of the family, that's very normal. Now, here's the experiment I did. I'm a bit more like my son. I'm a born and bred Londoner. And I'm used to that rush and you keep it to yourself mm -hmm. and English people are quite reserved and they don't really sort of show too much emotion or get too over the top. I married a very emotional person, partly because I think that's what I craved. So I have tried to do, to be more emotional, to be more available, to be more, to be friendlier in person because I perceive sometimes, and I, even when I watch myself, I'm like, God, I'm frowning. Why am I frowning? I'm not unhappy. I'm happy. Mm. But that's the way I look because my face naturally, its natural state can be quite tough looking. Mm. Um, and, you know, you work on television, you see that. So I actively go out and see people and I say hi. And I say, how do you do? And I ask them about themselves. So I go into a Starbucks and I comment on the girl's blouse. Or, and, and they look as people look at you for a second and they're stunned. Like, who are you? Like, what's wrong with you? And then they're like, oh, thank you. And some people react really nicely to it. What, Tom? Oh, like, why is he asking me to go to the library with him? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Then there's that. <laughs> so tell me, why is it then that, you know, I, I, as far as being civil, I feel like I'm being a lot more civil when I sort of feel like I care about people. And not that I'm, it's fake, because I do care and I am quite interested. And it does make me feel good to go out and say, to comment on someone or to, to recognize people or to see them. And to be more a, a part of everything versus being a part of just my own little narrow yeah. world. You didn't mean to do this, but you so set me up because I think what you're doing is you're establishing this kind of hierarchy where there's like one best way to be. It's like the one most personable civil way to be and everything else is short of that. And I think that's very much in keeping in a weird way with the spirit of our time, which is like my side does it right and your side does it wrong. Like we here in the South, we know what it means to be well, courteous. I'm not, I don't polite. think I'm better, but I'm trying to be better. I, I know that. But what I'm saying is that you should let yourself off the hook here because the truth is there's a lot of different ways to be civil and decent and to conduct ourselves. And we kind of adapt based on where we are and also our personality. You're right. Like some of us are different. Some people are kind of naturally bubbly and they enjoy that like – friendly interaction and some of us are a little more introverted and we like to keep to ourselves but if you live in new york that's right but if you live in new york it's what my point is i, I hear you yeah right? but the thing is is if you live in new york it is somewhat frowned upon to be the bubbly you know extrovert well okay and and if you live in the south for example and you're the, and you're the new yorker there you're considered to be rude but let, no no but in only in certain circumstances so like i met you and chrissy um your bubbly and very sweet wife you know when we were very you know we were young parents our kids were starting school and it was like a breath of fresh air to have chrissy in the room she was so wonderful and sweet and generous and she wound up being you know one of those people who knit helped to knit a community together and i think right. she was kind of greatly admired for that um so in the other circumstance which is like maybe walking down the hallway of your i building. on the other hand yeah let's not talk about nigel <laughs> I on the other hand. <laughs> let's not talk about nigel but but you know walking down the street no no one's got time for this you know sweet southern hello because um, people are racing off to do their thing so I think it just kind of depends on the context I'd probably appreciate you more walking down the street where I could just give you like a, a polite nod and we go our way and but, it's like we have some mutual understanding but that thing exactly that the civility of going going and asking someone how telling them they got a nice blouse I mean I had the Great fortune of being in a car with Nigel this morning coming driving into New York City <laughs> I can tell you. There was one guy you know, in, a, in a big pickup truck weaving in and out, and he had his finger out the window. I mean, he was, it wasn't particularly at us, it was particularly at anyone. Who, yeah. 
I, I didn't see Nigel. I've got to say, I didn't see you in a rush to tell him he was wearing a nice shirt and, <laughs> and, and had a great haircut. Well, no, that I wasn't trying that particular you know experiment at that point. <laughs> so I'm not like so that. So does it vary? I'm the one who's like, wait a second, the alpha in me comes straight out. I'm like, okay, watch this. And I zip he past him, go by him, yeah, go well. straight through. And the New Yorker in me that is an overachiever and decides that he's, everything is a competition. You know, it, it, I will drink more Negronis than you. I will drink them faster and I will drink them taller. Um, but but anyway, you know, I, I guess you're right. I mean, I hear you. I, I certainly, you know, I, I think about these aspects of my own personal life because I'm always trying to be better or do, you know, certainly be more fulfilled. And I did enjoy, I do enjoy being more open and being happier. And I feel that sometimes my own way, you know, traps me in my, my yeah, own personality. It doesn't that. allow me to be, and I, I, you know, I go, God, that was, how easy was that to be nice? Yep. You know, I say to my son, it's much easier to be nice. If you know, by not the, being the nice, benefits you feel of, The benefits of, I think what, what you're flagging up, the benefits of being open-minded as well. I mean, that's, because you've just taken the open-minded approach to, to I'm trying, man. I, you know, like, that, that's in, also what this book has been about for me is kind of like, Trying out that spirit of open-mindedness in a in a moment where we are we're so self-assured, right? And like I think I see so many people kind of hunkering down on their side and raising their own flag and touting the virtues of their own position and their people. When what we need to be doing is finding some way to reach across these divisions and recognizing our shared humanity. And honestly, like it's it's a weird position that I'm in right now because I I probably sound kind of optimistic or you know. It's not that I'm optimistic. It's just that I feel desperate to find some way out of this bind that we're in. And I think if we're not going to get hopeful. it just by cautiously, cautiously hopeful. I mean, it, it, I'm trying to figure out the path forward. It's more practical than that. You know, well, it's more practical. It's like I can't be in the conversation where we all get together and complain about how bad the situation is anymore. Like I'm, I'm so exhausted from that dinner party where like we start nicely and we find some your cocktails like half full. I mean that's the, I'm working on it. Man. No, no, no. I, I meant like literally as a figure of speech. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. My cocktails half full. Um, Meanwhile, yours is empty, by the way, Tom. But anyway, that's not a figure of speech. <laughs> My stomach. Right? But I can't. Full. Can you take that conversation? Like I don't want to go to that party anymore. No. I so yeah. so like if you're listening, the the thing I've been asking people to do is. You know, if we want to try to get our way out of this, next time the the conversation turns into that like totally cliched and at this point pretty boring conversation, try to figure out, you know, what can we do about it? like what, what's a good what's a thing a place that you've gone that's been inspiring for you? What's a moment where you've wound Say up crossing oh. a border? Yeah, and, and not even like in oh. a it doesn't have to be like in a kind of a like a light cliched way. Like find a specific. Place okay, for the, where okay, something but happened, for the average you know? person, right, the average person doesn't get to travel. Right? We and I, 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 you know, I often think about my life, and I've lived in Paris, I lived in Milan, I came from London, I now live in New York. I spent many months every year for many years in Los Angeles. I've experienced a lot of the world. I've seen things. Right, a lot of people. That's not what happens. That's not their situation. And traveling at all, even you know, just a few hundred miles, can be a big deal. Yeah. Right. So w when you ask them these sorts of questions, it, you know, the average person, I think sometimes gets lost. They just think about what their small little scenario and they may not be able to fully appreciate like what the options are. But sometimes it's just appreciating where you are too. Like I will, I, honestly, the most like amazing things happened to me when I went into this branch library in Seward Park. Like when I felt really bad about the situation and thought like the, 
the world is ending. Like, I can't believe this guy is the president. I can't believe what's happening in this country. When I'd walk into a library and see this room full of like young Chinese American and white kids and Latino kids doing, you know, multilingual singing together in a, in a room in the library where I see, I went to this thing called library lanes where they have old people who live alone, go to the basement of the library and do virtual bowling on an Xbox where they compete against other library teams. And like once a week they get mm. together and do this. I'm telling you guys, like it was great. I, I, I would leave the library feeling like just a little more optimistic Fights about the humanity. future of our space. Oh. Do, they, do they have bowling shirts? They do have bowling shirts. In oh, fact, I'm, in. I'm going to put, great. I'm going to, I'm going to give one to you on social media. We're going to put it on your Twitter. It's, it's like, I, I put it up there this weekend. I got tons of responses. Like it's, it's just, now, everyone's going to want it. Yeah. It's heartwarming. And so you don't have to go to Paris or Istanbul to find something special. Like it, sometimes it's just pausing to, to have appreciate your faith what's here. And faith in humanity restored. Really. So, what's Eric, going on the in Negroni, By the way, your Negroni is restoring a little bit of my faith in humanity oh, good, today. Good, good. It's restored my, my faith in the fact that you can actually make a cocktail. It's a damn good cocktail. <laughs> Every now and then you sort of, you know, know. after you've had a few. It I sounds know. fantastic. So I want to know, where in the world has it right? Should we all be moving to Norway? Sweden? I mean, or is that just... Yeah. It was like the joke of... Um, exactly. It's an yeah, like, ongoing joke that they've got it right. Iceland. <laughs> I'm moving to Finland. We used I'm to like, always say it was Scandinavia, but now they're like, you know, anti-immigrant and hostile. Yeah, they're far right. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to Stockholm in a few weeks because they were like, we're in a crisis of civil society here. That's know, where the Vikings like, came from, don't forget. Oh, but all the far, there's a resurgence of the far right. So who has it right? Does anyone have it right? Well, I think it depends on the specific thing. Okay, which city then? Do we have a city that's laid out best that has? I mean, where? No, are, I don't have a city that's laid out best. But like, there's a chapter in my book that I has a lot answers. to say about Rotterdam. Have you been to Rotterdam? I like I Rotterdam. I have been to Rotterdam. Rotter, so here's what Rotterdam is doing. I spent well. a long like this, time in Amsterdam. Every okay. Year. Well, let's talk about this for a second. So, what's really cool about the Netherlands generally right now, which is also a place that has a lot of problems, is they have been more upfront and serious about dealing with the threat of climate change than any other place. Partly it's because they've been dealing with the threat of fl- ma- catastrophic flooding since 1953 when they had this huge you know, hurricane. Oh, yeah, their, their average, their average you know, sea level is. I mean, they're, they're Below half, sea level. They're, they're down, yeah. yeah. They need it. They need to do it. So, so they're like, their major export in, in right now is kind of water engineering. But they have like, they've been rebuilding their cities so that they can both deal with the threat of the extreme weather and the water that's coming while also improving the quality of everyday life. And this is a thing that I write about that social infrastructure can do. Like for instance, they're building plazas that are like public parks that have all kinds of recreational space and social space, like really pleasant places to be fountains, like a lovely place to So you can um, only cross the street by a bridge. So the answer, people, is to build dams in the city. Yeah, but so that if you, you cannot cross the street to the other side. If you wish to, you have to find the bridge or you can throw a stone. You're so cynical, Nigel. Um, I, I knew I liked Chrissy for a reason. <laughs> I'm just calling it no, like no, it is. And also the other reason is... I, is very annoying I, think the, I think the Dutch have got the highest average height of, 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 of population. They? They're the tallest people in the world. Yes. And that's not, I think Nigel probably sees that as a threat. It's, oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, he's always trying to... Give himself an extra half an inch. I, I, let me just say that I feel like in this entire season on your podcast, you will not get so deeply into the psyche of Nigel Barker. We've gotten today. Like we are, okay. we are breaking ground. We try not to. <laughs> and breaking hearts. But wow. let me tell you, like, so these amazing public spaces that they built in in Rotterdam, on a on a day where there's a kind of a catastrophic rain situation or there's a flood risk, they basically put walls up. Like they, the basins convert into a walled off space that become water storage facilities. And help them deal with the 
climate threat. And so one thing that, that I call out the Netherlands as being exemplary for is thinking about how to build social infrastructure into their kind of new climate security plan. So they're like, this book that I've written is also a call to invest money differently, to build differently, because in, in here in the US, we are going to be spending hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars over time to rebuild these systems that we rely upon to be part of a modern society. And if we just build kind of the traditional like hard infrastructure, like water's coming, build a wall, you know, people are coming, build a wall. If that's our response to everything, we will miss a historic opportunity to make places better. To Don't evolve. forget marijuana and prostitution are both legal evolve. in Amsterdam. In Amsterdam. I was going to get to that. But it is very cool that your like nine-year-old daughter can smell marijuana and, be, and identify it. That's from Amsterdam. <laughs> I, do you know something? <laughs> I took it to Amsterdam. You know, just, when too? he said it, that yeah. went straight through my head. How would she know? What, anyway? Well, because everyone here is terrified by the fact that people would actually have experienced something in actual life and know what it is. Of course, you can't say anything in America without being completely on PC. No. But the reality is, is that, yes, she can. Truth. And she can actually identify what the leaf looks like, too, because she's seen it. Yeah. When you no, go okay. to Amsterdam, no, because we, we, I, I work in Because you moved to Woodstock. It's not Woodstock, actually. It is, in fact, Amsterdam. <laughs> it's walking down but the street in Woodstock. When you live there, you, there are like these cafes where they smoke weed and they actually sell the, the they have maps on the back recipes or me menus rather. make sure you're, you're saying this is Amsterdam not Woodstock right? before otherwise would you're going to have an entire kind of a SWAT team now what maybe. I'm going to be doing actually when I move back to when I go back to Woodstock is actually I'm going to build a dam is the first thing I'm doing <laughs> in Woodstock and then a canal I feel like you're misunderstanding my book <laughs> and then I'm going to build a palace on the top can you round that can you round off whatever I was saying by, by saying that basically the future is Holland I think is the, the they're the, doing some stuff right the there. Civic. They're doing some stuff right, but there there are and other cities. Speak English. Are, look, you know, New York City is doing a lot of stuff right. By the way, New York City is doing a lot of stuff like so. You know, there's a whole new set of plans to um, to to do kind of like Dutch style architecture and 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 water security on the edges of the city that got flooded by Sandy. And I think we're doing a lot right in terms of investing in shared places. The challenge for New York City is. Uh, that it's become so expensive, it's become it's, it's become very exclusive, and so it's it's not as welcoming to everyone. And you know we have not been investing in um, the kind of traditional infrastructure. So like a thing like the the subway, which I think once was a great part of our civil society, now just makes people angry at each other because you go down there. I've always there thought it so, to be the so most un uncivilized place on the planet. I hate subway, but anyway, that's just me because I don't like lots of people around me at all times, and I freak out. But Eric. Palaces for the People. It's a great book. You, you know, if you if you care about society right now and, and what we need to do about it, I recommend that you go out and buy this book. How Social Infrastructure Can Help Fight Inequality, Polarization and the Decline of Civic Life by Eric Kleinenberg. And it is published by Crown. Um, where can we get this book? Anywhere books are sold. Can Anywhere. I say that? Anywhere books Including your library. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and rent, hire it for free from the library. Even better. <laughs> I think we are both shaken and stirred by this conversation. Thanks, Eric. Thank, Thank you, Sarah. It was fun. Thank you so much. <laughs>